This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome everybody to Journey to Greatness number eight. So a lot of us look around and see people who may have achieved greatness in their lives. They may have started amazing organizations or they may have you know, gone to the tops of whether it's learning or chesed or whatever it may be. And a lot of, a lot of us, simple folk, you know, we look at ourselves and we go like, how, like what differentiates between these amazing people who've done so much in their lives and us, you know, trying to find our way and like swim through, you know, the currents of life. So what he talks about in Chavis HaTalmidim is a very interesting idea, which we're going to sort of break into different segments try to maybe glean out for ourselves different parts of our own life. So I think that everybody in a certain sense is looking for chiddish in their lives. And to me, what that means is, you know, if you ever sat through a speech and you've heard like a story before, you know what I'm talking about, where you just like tune out for like that minute, right? Because oh, I heard this already. It's like, oh, it's boring. It's so stupid. I already heard this. Because we crave chiddish. Like when you hear something that's like new, you're like, oh. Ooh, that's that's like ah, uh, you know, like your your brain wakes up because there's something there. There's like there's there's a chiddush. Our 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 neshama. We've spoken about this in the past. Is the word mishana, which means to change, and it wants change. It wants growth. It wants accomplishment, and it wants chiddush. Chiddush chiddush is a type of change, which is by the way, why people who are artsy, right, art and creativity is in a certain sense mimicking Hashem, who's a creator, right? So. We live our lives looking for, in our own ways, creativity. It could be creativity within doing a tax return. It could be creativity in terms of art. It could be, in our own way, finding something that's new in our life. And when we find that, most of us get excited. Like, oh, there's like a certain part of us that becomes alive. And he talks about a farmer. And he says, if you would take a farmer whose whole life is farming, plowing and planting and seeding, I don't know what these guys do, but whatever it is that they do, right? And you take this guy and you put him in a field and say to him, there's a stalk on one side of the field and there's an apple on the other side of the field. What will happen to the farmer's neshama is it will start to slowly get depressed. His neshama will get depressed. He'll be walking around the field going like, huh, what? Picking up like a bale of hay over here, an apple over here. But you take that same farmer and you say to him, the crops are bursting and the trees are blossoming and there's so much work to do, that farmer is going to get up at three o'clock in the morning, start milking the cows and gathering the eggs from the chicken and running through his day. The farmer is going to be alive because the farmer's purpose, what he has set his life towards, has actual meaning. It has chiddush, it has challenge, and it has sipuk. It has accomplishment. At the end of the day, the farmer is going to collapse into bed with a big smile on his face. Because he's going to feel like my life has a meaning and a purpose. But now, if you take that same farmer and you say to him, I want you to paint the fence. You say that say to that farmer, I want you to sit down and do a tax return. Or I want you to edit a book. That guy's going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. That is not my calling. That is not my feel. That is not my element. And because he's now out of his element, even if the challenge is much less, He's going to have no sipok. He's going to have no satisfaction. He's not going to be happy. He's not going to be driven. And he's going to slowly give every reason and excuse in the world why he can't function. I'm tired. can't look at a screen for so long. I don't have so much zitzlash. He's going to have a thousand reasons why he can't do a task, which is so much easier. It's easier to do a tax return 
than to run around like a mishugano, you know, picking apples or or whatever these people do. It's much easier physically, but it's not about the physical exertion. It's about the emotional drive that a person has. And what he talks about in this first concept of tonight is that a person should strive to find their farm. Find the thing that speaks to you. Find your tax return. Identify the thing that gives you sipuk, drive, energy, kayach. And if you, if you start to touch that thing, you, it's like an electric shock. You'll feel like, oh, 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 this speaks to me. Like driving for Chaya Lifeline. For some people, that's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my thing. And for some people, it's like, it's not. It's hard. It's hard. There are reasons. It's too early. It's too late. It's too much traveling. I'm not good traveling. There are a million reasons why. Every single one of us has different parts within Yiddishkeit, which is ours. It speaks to us. You know, Parayim Mitzrayim, he created what was called Avedas Parach. So we all know, like a joke already, that like he gave the women the men's jobs and the men the women's jobs, right? You know, let, let's go back in time. Let's not talk 2023, wherever, whatever year we're holding, right? Like, traditionally, men worked very hard in the fields, right? Today, they also work hard. You know, it's hard with everything going on. But they traditionally worked, like, really, really hard. I'm saying guys worked in the fields. It was really back-breaking labor, right? Women also did, I know. But, like, you imagine if you switch those roles. So, like, male of the women, they would be like, okay, I can't carry bricks and I can't be building pyramids. I'm saying that's, like, back-breaking work, Right? But you take a man and say, like, you have to boil water and you have to, like, dice the onions, you know? Like, how, how challenging is this? I'm not, again, I'm not taking away from what all the women do. They do amazing work, right? But, but he says that what we have to appreciate is that for somebody who's out of his element, who's not a chef, and you throw him into the kitchen, the frustration will start mounting. The depression will start, like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm boiling the water. I don't know what's happening. I'm burning the pot. That guy is going to be very frustrated. And part of the Avedas Parach in Mitzrayim was that Pari was creating frustration. He was creating a very frustrated nation. It wasn't that it was physically hard. It was that by switching up all the roles, everyone was walking around going like, I can't do this. I can't, you can't do this. You're baking a cake. Like, relax. But for certain people, that was like throwing them over the edge. They were, they were just emotionally spent. Somebody is task, like a taskmaster standing over me. Pushing me to do things that's out of my element. I, I can't do this. I can't do this. But we find that when you find your niche, you find your groove, you find your mitzvah, you find your chesed, you find your tefillah, you find your tehillim. When you find that, all of a sudden you'll be like, these words give me comfort. This, this action makes me feel fulfilled. Whatever it is that each one of us finds, it gives us a certain sense of sipok and accomplishment. There's a person who I know, he was a member of Chaverim. He's still a member of Chaverim. And I was talking to him once, and a friend of his walked by and said, do you know that this guy got the award from Chaverim for the last, I believe it was a month? The last month he answered the most calls for Chaverim. Any other member. This guy was number one. And it wasn't the first time. This guy is like number one, many months running. He's the LeBron James of Javier. I said, like, amazing. Like, for me, I can't even, <laughs> like, the only way I know my tires are flat or not flat is, like, if the thing on this car tells me that it's flat. You know, and to fix the, I don't even know where the spare is, let alone fixing it. That's, like, not happening in my lifetime. So I was like, how, how, what's your secret sauce? How did you do this? 
And this guy said, I realized years ago what sepuk it is to pull up to some guy or some person who is just totally stranded on the side of the highway. And at three minutes flat, their flat is right filled up and they're on their way. They're, they're just ready to go. And he said it, there were many, many nights where he didn't even he didn't even make it to his bed. He slept in his car so that he'll be ready to take a call, an emergency, in the middle of the night, whatever it is, so someone doesn't have to wait out in the cold. I was like, that is insane dedication. But it's not just the dedication. It's that the the job, the task, it filled him with so much meaning that this guy was like jumping sleep. You know what I'm saying? He didn't he didn't need a bed. It was more about like, where's the next flat tire? Where's the next person that's locked out? Where's the next person whose baby's locked in the bathtub and they can't get in and they're, they're panicking? I want to be the first guy on call. I don't want that woman to have to wait another three minutes while I get, you know, out of pajamas. That person found his calling. He found his mitzvah. He found his thing. And the proof is that he's filled with so much energy and so much life. It says, we're all familiar with the song probably, it's more like a Medivit song. Ultimately, Hashem is going to make a big circle for all the tzaddikim. Hashem will sit in the middle in Ganeidim. And each one is going to point with his finger and he's going to say, This was Hashem that I was always striving towards. Because I'll say, why is it that Hashem will sit in the middle of a circle? Why doesn't he sit at the head of a table? And everybody will look, you know, look at him in that direction. That's how you imagine Hashem is there and everybody else is here. And Chazal say, no, Hashem will specifically sit in the middle of a circle. Because in this day and age, in our world, we oftentimes think to ourselves, like, my way is the best way. Being yeshivish is the best way. Like, answering, like, you know, learning is the best way. You know, tefillah is the best way. Simcha is the best way. Everybody has their best way. When we look at other people and go, oh, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. That guy, that's, that's his Avedis Hashem, that's what he's doing. And the Gemara is telling us, no, Hashem is going to sit in the middle. And when you take Hashem out of it, everybody looks and they go, I'm going north and you're going south. But when you put Hashem in the middle, you realize that everybody's striving in their own way towards the same common goal, which is Dveikos Ba Hashem. Through all the mitzvahs that we have, you realize they're all really striving as a, as a union, as a nation, towards that same common goal. So the first concept is that a person should try to find their sweet spot, the thing that gives them life, the thing that gives them chizak. Remember, I was I was learning by by Rabbi Berkowitz in Eretz Yisrael, and traditionally the kolel, we call it the JK, the Jerusalem kolel, the JK. Um, it, it pushes people to go out and do kira v'chaykim. That's it's like mantra. They send people out to do kira v'chaykim. All Rabbi Berkowitz's shiurim are sort of geared around the idea that somebody's going to be living out in the middle of the desert, like in Tom's River or wherever. And they're going to have to be able to pass conchilas and, and answer questions and have hashkafa and speak in public and deal with crises. And you're not going to have a major support system and you're going to be on campus and you're going to have not religious students coming up to you and saying, why do you dip your salt three times? You know, like to be able to answer questions. That's sort of like the goal of the JK. That's what they try to, you know, teach you and empower you to do. So there was one guy who was sitting in the back of the room one day. And Rabbi Berkowitz was teaching all these things, and he was talking about, like, one day, Rabbi Isai, you'll be out there, and you'll be on the front lines of Kirov, and you'll be doing this, and you'll be doing that. And somebody said, but, like, but one second, but, like, let's say I'm a ninth grade Rebbe. And he was like, you know, so then how would I answer my ninth grade Talmud who asks me the same question? And what would you, you know, every question that Rabbi Berkowitz was saying, this guy kept rephrasing it. And what if the guy was a ninth grader, and then he asked this? And what if the guy, 
So like finally our coach like he's like, you should become a ninth grade Revy, right? Because clearly it's in your bones and that's your drive that you should become a ninth grade Revy. And this guy today is an amazing ninth grade Revy because we all are cut from a different mold and we all have different things that speak to us. And a part of the idea of identifying your own potential for greatness is finding the parts of Judaism, of Yiddishkeit, defining and identifying your Yiddishkeit. Obviously within the parameters of halacha, within the parameters of Ashkafa, but there are so many elements which speak to so many different people. And a lot of times the reason why you find that somebody achieved greatness in a specific area was because they found that specific area. They found that they're an amazing storyteller. They found that they're great with young kids. They found that they're great at Kirov. They found that they're great at driving. Whatever it is that a person finds, speaks to them, and actually gives them Sipok, that is, let's call it step number one towards achieving the best version of you. The second idea is, you may have seen this article, probably in one of these Jewish magazines, where there are people, there are farmers, we're talking a lot about farmers today, but there, there are farmers, there are people who create very unique shaped either fruit or sometimes they do it with trees as well. So there are people who create like, for example, square watermelon. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's like square watermelon. No, they don't sell it locally. Whatever, it's a thing. Or they might have like a tree that grows like in the shape of a chair. Now, how do they do that? So what they realized a while ago was that Trees grow, obviously. If you take things like metals or different forms, you can oftentimes channel the thing that's growing to grow a little bit more the way that you want it to be. And the recipe that he lays out for us is what we're going to call growth plus consistency equals change. Growth plus consistency equals change. If something's growing... It has a trajectory, and you alter that trajectory for long enough, you will see change. You will see something change within that thing. Sometimes doctors have this where a child may break their arm, and then it will start to fuse, but it'll be like on a funny angle. And the doctors know, if you let this grow on this trajectory, the kid's going to have, you know, like a bent arm, or his wrist will be off, or whatever it is. Oftentimes, they'll have to break it, and then reset it so that it grows back correctly. Now, why is this important? Because within our lives, we oftentimes have what's called muscle memory, right? You do a repetitive action and it creates like a certain, your mind remembers to do a certain thing just by default. That's what happens. You know, Vladimir Putin, he walks around. It's very, it's known that he holds his arm very close to his side when he walks, always. Whenever he walks, his arm is very stiff by his side because he was in the KGB and they trained him. They train all KGB officers that your hand has to be right near your weapon at all times. So you don't have to like reach. So if you ever notice him walking, you'll see he's always, his arm is like stiff. He walks, like gets off a plane, his arm is like stiff. It's part of the muscle memory. Like you get up, your arm is stiff. You're ready to just grab your weapon. They train soldiers like that. Like your mind reacts in a certain way. I was talking to somebody in very successful in, in business. He told me business is the same thing with like muscle memory where I've spoken about this in the past where when you start something, your right hand is your delicate hand. It's the hand that knows how to like draw and craft and create. And in a certain sense, when you're starting new to business, you don't know anything. So everything takes time and the delicacies of, of doing whatever it is that you're doing. 
But once it becomes ruggle by you, once it becomes like something that you're, you're used to doing, then you switch it to your left hand. Your left hand is not so skilled if you're a righty, right? So you're able to just like go like this. And then with your right hand, it's much more skilled. And you're able to like do the new things with your right hand. And then you pass it off to your left hand. And in growing a business, every person should have their left hand things that they're just doing by muscle memory or by memory. And then there's the things that are in your right hand that take a little bit more like dexterity. You have to spend a little bit more time and make sure that you really know what you're doing. Now, he takes this to the next level, which is that there's something called spiritual memory. And that means that if a person who's on a trajectory of growth, which just because you're young doesn't mean you are, and just because you're old doesn't mean you're not, every person who puts themselves on a trajectory of growth, that means that they decide they want to grow and change. In order to achieve change, you have to start doing something different that speaks to you and gives you a lot of seatbook, and you have to do it to the point where it becomes part of something that you just do. So for example, let's say somebody is not used to davening every day. So in the beginning, it's very conscious. It's like very aware. Like, today I'm getting up five minutes earlier and I'm going to daven and I'm going to get to the bus on time and I'm going to do my thing. But then like on the 50th day or the 100th day, the person just jumps out of bed, davens and goes. They don't even think about it anymore. Like how do you know when a person, let's say somebody who's dieting, right? How, do you, how does a person know when they're dieting that they're done dieting, that they just achieved their weight? that this is going to be their ideal weight? The answer is when you're not thinking about it anymore. The minute you get up in the morning, you're like, okay, I'm going to take two egg yolks and then two whites. You're not there yet. You're still, you're, your brain, is, it's still your right hand. It's, you're still trying to figure it out. You're still struggling. Every day is a struggle. Like You're counting your calories. You're weighing your protein bars. You're not there yet. When it switches to your left hand, it becomes part of your muscle memory. It just becomes part of your physical memory. It becomes part of your spiritual memory. You just do it. You don't think about it. Like, what are you eating? Oh, I'm just eating two eggs. It just becomes what you do. You don't have to think about it. And then it's in the bank. Then you know that it's something that is there for longer. The change has established itself. My wife was once talking to a woman who's married for many years. And she said that her husband... Like she said, if I were to summarize like my ideal day, it would be that my husband would come in the door and he would say, hey, you must have had a really long day. You know what I really wish we could do? I wish I would just take you out for a walk and you could just tell me about your day. So this is what she told my wife. So my wife was like, okay, how long are you married? 20 years. So my wife said, okay, here's what you're going to do. Okay. Now, most people, in order to get somebody else to change, they yell, they scream, they pout, they walk around the house, they're in a bad mood, or they have like these like interventions and sit down and yell. My wife said to her, this is what you're going to do. You're going to put the element of change that you want into your marriage really, really subtly. You're not going to stand on ceremony and you're not going to make it a big deal. You're just going to make it a left-handed thing. Not right-handed, left-handed. So what you're going to do is your husband comes and go, hey, how are you? Great. Hey, how about we go out just for a five-minute walk around the block? Five-minute walk around the block. We never did that in 20 years. I know. I'm just I'm in the mood. Five-minute walk around the block. Okay? And she did this. They went five-minute walk around the block. The next day, she, he came home. She's like, oh, how are you? Great. Before you take off your coat, let's just go for a five-minute walk around the block. Okay? Went for a five-minute walk around the block. She did this for a number of weeks. And then one day she called my wife and she was laughing and crying at the same time. She said her husband walked in the door and he goes, hey, yo, you ready for our five minute walk around the block? <laughs> and she's like, it was the first time in 20 years. Her husband was like, yeah, let's just go for a walk around the block. It became part of like ruggle. It just became part of what they do. And, and following up on this, it became a thing that they do as a couple and her needs are getting met. 
day after day after day, the first thing her husband does is he comes in and that five minute walk became a 15 minute walk and it became longer and then they stop off and they get ice cream and ice coffee or whatever it is that they need. Rather than fighting things and making them challenging, you put in the element that you need. You make the growth consistent. That's the key, consistent. And then you experience the change. It just becomes something that just becomes part of your lifestyle. And within, let's call it our Aveda, our mitzvahs, we have, if you do something repetitively enough, it becomes a part of your identity. Oh, you're the guy who does this. Oh, you're the girl who, oh, you're the one who drives for Chaya Lifeline. Oh, you're the one who's always helping with those Reza campaigns. Oh, you're the one who's always organized the Tehillim groups. You become a part, synonymous, with the thing that you become synonymous with, that you've identified. It gives me a lot of seatbook to see this happen. And then when you do it often enough, it becomes a part of who you are. The third idea, we have four ideas tonight. The third idea is that we all know we've been through elementary school. If you've been through elementary school, to a Jewish one at least, you know, you may have heard, everything that Hashem does is for the good. Obviously what that means is, whatever happens in the world is somehow for the good. There was an earthquake this week in Syria and Turkey. It's all for the best. How? So, it's hard for us to know. We don't necessarily know, but maybe it gives us a certain Yerash Shemayim, Yerash like, whoa, in one fell swoop, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people displaced, injured, dead, the countries are turned over like, like this, Yerash Shemayim, like just, just that concept. And we know, it's all for the best. There's another level here. Everything Hashem gave you in your life is also letav of it. It's also for you to find your tav, your tafket, to find your goodness and your purpose. That means that it's not just that your challenging parents are somehow for your best. It's that your challenging parents are somehow there to help you find your role in this world. I just sat with somebody who came from one of the most dysfunctional, challenging homes that you could possibly imagine. And the impact that this individual is happening, ha- having on hundreds and thousands of people, because not despite, because of her upbringing, because of what she went through and all the challenges that she's gone through, she found her tav. She found her, her, her tav kid. She found her purpose. She was able to connect to people in ways that other people could read in a book. She lived through it. And she was able to take those experiences and help other people. And a lot of people, rather than having this perspective, they oftentimes look at the challenges in, in our lives and they say, well, it must be that a lot of what Hashem does is maybe not so good, or maybe He meant somebody else's peckle really f- for them, but not for me. I'll explain to you what I mean. Imagine somebody's walking down and they see somebody horsing around and playing around on a dock. The person slips and falls and falls into the river, gets carried away downstream. A person could foolishly say to themselves, well, A plus B equals C, right? Water plus drowning equals water being bad. But if you stop and you think about that for a minute, it's a pretty foolish statement, right? Water is our entire planet is water, right? Your bodies are 70% water, right? We run on water, literally finding if a planet is, is fit for human habitation is based on if there's water, if there's a possibility of water, right? Scientists will always debate like, oh, I think we saw like a creek that existed 80 billion years ago on Mars's surface. Like they're always trying to find water somewhere, like a, like a tipa from anything. That means that like the planet is like 
able to sustain people. You don't come to a conclusion that something's bad based on an event. You just have to take a step back and realize that maybe this person was playing around near the water in a very dangerous manner. It's the same thing with everything in our lives. If you take a step, a step back and you realize that everything in your life, whether it's good or whether it's bad, really is there to help you find your purpose, your calling, your seat book and your tav, your goodness, then it changes the whole perspective. Maybe right now I don't see it, but maybe I'm designed to go to school to become a therapist for this specific thing. And I just met somebody who told me that he's an attorney and he does like a very interesting niche part of like law, like something that nobody ever, like you guys will probably never even hear of it. And I was like, that's very interesting. Like how in the world did you like get into this thing? Nobody wakes up in the morning when they're 13 years old and they go, you know what I want to deal with? Like employee stock option purchases, like things that like nobody ever even heard of. Like, Like, how did you get this? He's like, I'm telling you, I literally saw the Yad Hashem take me from, he was learning in Harvard. He's like, Hashem like moved me here. I met this guy. He introduced me to his boss. His boss liked me. He started a training program. Somebody was mentoring me. Like, it, it, it's like, I'm, I'm just like in the raft and like the currents are just taking me exactly where Hashem wants me to go. He's like, and then I realized I like it and there's benefits within working here and I'm able to help people and people who are in crisis. It's like, like somehow he's able to find the Tav within his life. We all have different routes and different paths. If we keep our minds open, then we will find that thing. And the last idea is as follows. So probably for me, one of the most impactful things that I think I ever heard from Robert Berkowitz was the concept that there is an, an idea, obviously, of learning Tyra. This table, probably many of the people on Zoom, um, are exempt from that, right? So you, unless, no, you're not. Unless, unless you, unless you, you're right, unless you're a man, you don't have necessarily that chiyav. And a lot of times you find people who are doing perhaps other things as well. And Berkowitz spoke about the idea of learning Tyra and also the idea of living Tyra. And he said, when a person gets up in the morning and they say the, 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 the pasach, the bracha of Avarabah, and they say that a person, the person davens, they say, Lomaid, Lulamaid, Lishmar, Vilasais, Ulekayim, as called Divrei Salmutarizaha. Bahava. When a person gets up in the morning, they say those words. That if you're a man, it's Lomaid, Lulamaid. You're a woman. It's also lishmar velasais ulakayim. It's called divrei samutar sacha biahava. I'm not necessarily just learning Torah, and within learning Torah, there's experiencing the depths of the Torah. There's experiencing the beauty of a dvar Torah or a story or a mashal or something that has beauty and flavor, and it speaks to you and it transforms your life. But the same thing is true in the lasais ulakayim. In the kiyum hatayra, in living chesed, in smiling at somebody, in driving for somebody. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with the story of the Nitziv. The Nitziv was Rosh Hashivah and Valajan. Very famous story that when he was a child, you guys know all the story, of course, because we're all Jewish. Say it over very quickly. The Nitziv, when he was a child, he was 11 years old, and he heard his parents talking, and his parents were saying like, oh... You know, our Naftali Tzvi is not doing very well in yeshiva. What's going to be? And his father was saying that maybe I'll send him to become an apprentice by a blacksmith, you know, a, a shoemaker. And then Nitziv came running through him and he said, no, no, please, please don't do that. And years later, when he was making a siyam on, on writing 
some of his svarim, he said, could you imagine Achimei Esther? I would have come up to Shemayim? And they would have said to me, oh, here comes the Rosh Hashiva. I'd say, who's the Rosh Hashiva? I'm just a shoemaker. And they'd say, no, here's the author of the Nitziv and the Hamakdavar. And they would go through all of my svarim. And I would say, what, what are you talking about? That's not me. There's somebody else. And they would say, no, that's who you could have become. You, Nitziv, threw away becoming the Nitziv. And he said that reality is what struck him as an 11-year-old child that he had within him to become so much more than what his yeshiva and what his parents maybe believed in him at the time. And that was the catalyst to help him grow. If you think about that metaphor of the Nitziv for each one of our lives, right, that it's not just about learning Torah, which is, of course, Talmud Torah Kneged Kulam, but it's also about being Lishmar Velazli, so Lekayim is called every Salmon Sacha. But that means that each one of us one day will come up to Shemayim and they will say to you, where was that ride for that, that person who needed to get to the hospital? Where was that smile for that person who needed chizuk? Where was that phone call for that woman on Arab Shabbos that could have used you know, that thing? Where was that baby who needed their diaper to be changed? And each one of us has to take a minute to find and identify with the things in our life that give us chizuk, the things that if we do it enough, it becomes part of our identity, realize that all the things that we have in our life are really set up for us to do whatever it is that needs to be done within all aspects of the Torah. And the, the shidduch phone call that you needed to pick up or the Reza campaign or forwarding a link to somebody or, or telling somebody a story or taking a minute out of your day to call somebody or visit somebody or whatever other things we have in our lives, that is our calling. If you do it repetitively enough, it can become part of your identity. Many years ago, I was going to camp Naram, and I, I went to camp when I was in third grade, like bunk Aleph Aleph. At the time, I didn't think it was like young. I, you know, it was as old as I knew, and I was very excited because there was a, a kid in my class who was going. So I decided I'm going to camp Naram. So I got on the bus, picked you up in Borough Park, drove you to Waymart, Pennsylvania. I sat down on the bus, and Sitting next to me, there's like, this kid is already in the seat. I had no friends um, who were going to camp. Let me finish that sentence. I had no friends who were going to camp, who, who, yeah, except for one, and his parents were driving him, okay? So I had no friends on the bus. I get on the bus, you know, ready to go. I sit down, and there's this kid sitting in the seat. So I'm like, okay, he's lonely. I'm lonely. I sat down, and I turned to him. I was like, hey, how are you? And he's like, I'm like, what? He's like, points his ears. And I'm like, and he like starts signing to me that he's deaf, doesn't, can't hear. So I was like, oh, sorry, you know, it's going to be like a long trip. So he takes out a pen and he writes down, he says, do you want to learn sign language? So I'm like, yeah, why not? So he taught me sign language. We got to camp, you know, we were schmoozing and practicing and practicing. And then like on the second night of camp, there was a play and I walk into the gym, there was a play. And I feel like a tap on my shoulder. And he signs me. He says, will you sign the play to me? Do you mind? So I was like, you know, all right. So he sat like next to me. And I'm like watching this whole play and listening. And as a kid, I was signing every play, every event, every sports, whatever was going on. That was what I did like the whole summer. And I did it third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And then that was it. We went our separate ways. And that was it. I was telling my wife the story. And she said, well, you want to hear an incredible story that goes along the same lines? She said there was a girl who was in a play. And her, semin- her seminary the year before had a play. And as part of the play, 
there was a girl who had like a mean part. And in this role, she had to sign. She had to do sign language. So they told her, either you could like fake it or whatever, but we really would like it to be authentic. So if you'd like to learn it, we would have somebody come in and train you to do it. So she said, okay. She threw herself into this, learned sign language, did a great job in the play. And then because she was now fluent in sign language, she went on to become a therapist specifically targeting people who are hearing impaired and who could only way that they could communicate is through sign language. And till today, she's a successful therapist for people who can't otherwise communicate and get their needs met, who are hard of hearing. It's just amazing if you think about it, that here's a simple woman living simple life, but she's extraordinary because none of us could do that. None of us probably ever will do that. But she sort of like followed her raft down the river, found her niche, found her place, learned the skill, realized it could help people, not just help people, but impact their lives and transform their lives. To these people, this woman is Mashiach. She's one in a billion. There's not many therapists can do therapy the way she does. And not many people who know sign language can become therapists. She has a combination, a weird, unique, in, like one in a million combination that she is able to literally change people's lives. Each one of us has these things in us. We don't necessarily realize it because we're always looking at what other people are doing. Oh, that person's so amazing and that person's so amazing. No, you're so amazing. And what's going to happen is that one day we're all going to sit down and we're going to have, you know, as the Gemara says, one day we're all going to have to face the music. And what are they going to ask us? They're going to ask us, not why didn't you become the Nitziv and why didn't you become a therapist for hearing impaired people? They're going to say to us, why didn't you become you? And that question is the most shocking question. It's why didn't you become you? Don't you realize that your entire life was designed specifically for you? All your challenges, all your family, everything that you have in your life is all for your tav, for your goodness. And if you would have taken a few minutes instead of fighting me, as the Pasuk initially says, somebody who fights Hashem, they fight the rotten Hashem and they get angry at Hashem. Mishle, Shlomo Melchi says, you're a fool. You're looking at water and you're saying this is bad. Because you don't, you don't understand that water is not only intrinsically good, it's the source of all life. The Torah is also the source of all life. Hashem is also the source of all life. And Hashem tells us straight out, I'm giving you one objective. Connect to me. How am I going to do it? Oh, just open your eyes. You will find around you millions of opportunities. And guess what? If you start to delve into those opportunities, you'll find your identity, your identity, the thing that speaks to you specifically. And if you run with that identity, you'll see that it gives you life, gives you chiyas, your neshama is alive. And if you continue along that path, you actually will achieve greatness. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.